Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Catherine Jones, who is a radiologist, a brilliant, very high achieving doctor, leader in her field. And we spoke about the impact of COVID on other areas of medicine. We talked about artificial intelligence and we spoke about her new book, which is out now. Uh, I recorded this late last year, but um, I have not put it up until now. But if you have the opportunity, do go buy the book. It's a story. It's full, a book of stories, letters to people's younger selves. And I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed reading her story, which she sent to me to have a look at it uh, before it was published. So that said, I'll let you get on with listening to this in just a minute. A few plugs coming up now. So uh, on, I think, the 19th of February, where there will be a new podcast launching, a spin-off of The Bugle called The Gargle, uh, that will be hosted by me. It'll be weekly. It'll be a sort of a magazine show spin-off of The Bugle. If The Bugle is an audio newspaper for a visual world, this will be the arts and culture and science section. So uh, satirical comedy, but not about the headlines that have to do with Trump and Brexit, basically. Uh, Thank you so much to all of my Patreons for supporting me. The weekly tea salons have been going really well. I've been enjoying them very much. Uh, if you don't follow me on Patreon, that's one of the things I offer is a tea salon weekly for subscribers above a certain level. Below that level, uh, there are various other things available on the Patreon. But I just want to say thank you to everybody who supports me there. It has been the thing this year that has allowed me to keep doing the work that I do. So I appreciate it immensely. All these tiny little made it cheese supporting the work of an artist. It is an astonishing thing and it moves me deeply every time I think about it, which is quite a lot, quite a lot. Uh, as ever, Savage is available on Amazon Prime. The full trilogy is available for free for people who don't like Amazon or don't want to pay for it. As a podcast, the Alice Fraser trilogy, various other of my work is available. Most of it is centralized on the front page of the Patreon just to kind of try and lure you there. But you don't have to pay to get access to that front page. So that's fine. And actually, you don't have to pay to get access to most of it. I I try to keep most of it available to everybody, particularly in these uh, extremely straightened times that we live in. So that said, rambling complete, I will let you get on with listening to this podcast with Catherine Jones. You're having tea with Alice. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. who are you and what are you drinking? Well, hello, Alice. Uh, my name's Catherine Jones and I'm drinking Earl Grey, which is yesterday's tea from my Advent tea calendar. Very oh, excited. you have an Advent tea calendar. I that have an Advent is... tea calendar. So Yes, great. which my husband gave it to me this year. Uh, Why don't I have that? <laughs> what I don't that? know, Alice. You should have it. It's... Uh, It's interesting because it makes me drink a whole bunch of tea that I wouldn't normally try to have. I had one that was strawberry and vanilla flavoured the other day, which I would never have chosen, but it was quite nice. Normally I'll steer clear clear of a flavoured tea out of some sort of, I guess, misplaced snobbery. I'm I'm, I'm not a tea snob. I always make this point quite clear. I'm a tea fan, so I will drink a crappy bag tea. You know, it it doesn't bother me. I feel like there's a kind of a uh, – David Mitchell used to do these soapbox rants, which are very funny. They're on YouTube, and in one of them he talked about coffee 
snobs and the way that they will simultaneously feign a greater desire for coffee and then a greater pickiness about coffee than anyone else as a way of establishing their status. Like, I must have a coffee, but it must be single origin Ecuadorian, you know, light roast mm. blend coffee. Yes, I, I can certainly understand why he would say that. I think the thing with me and my tea addiction is not so much that I must have it in order to get through my day, but it makes my day a lot nicer and it does make my day, I guess, more socially pleasant to go and have a cup of tea with somebody. And it's a little bit of experimentation because every tea is different and just like people, like everything has something to offer and it sort of depends on what you're in the mood for in that particular day. Yes, that's why I think meeting someone for tea is for me, a more fun experience than meeting someone for coffee, not just because I don't drink coffee, but because tea sort of lasts as long as you want it to last. You can keep refilling a pot, for example, or, you know, it's it's a leisurely activity. It's not, it doesn't zazz you up and you can have these long rambling conversations. When I decided I was going to start a podcast now years ago, some, six years ago, something like that, um, I thought, you know, what will it be? I don't know what it'll be. And I'd been looking to find a, someone to co-host it with me and I wasn't sure what it was going to be. And I thought, what is the most me thing? What's the thing that I enjoy the most in the world? And it was just sitting down with a friend and talking about everything, these conversations that just go in all directions and you end up being very deep and very vulnerable and exploring ideas tentatively with one another and you feel safe enough to say, oh, this thing that everyone's on board with, I'm not sure if I'm on board with it or whatever it happens mm. to be. Yes. And I, love I think that. there's certainly something about sitting down with somebody that you know and trust and I guess that's why there are so many tea-pouring ceremonies in different cultures around the world. Yeah, it's such a... It's and I don't a, drink coffee, <laughs> so I'm on totally on board with the, <laughs> not having a coffee. <laughs> well, I've been thinking about it actually a lot recently because I've been thinking about what I'm going to do with this podcast. I haven't been able to put it out very regularly in the last few months because I have construction next door, which is incessant. So finding times to record where there isn't loud noise in the background, particularly during COVID times where you can't just go to a place and meet someone for tea you have to sort of do it from home and then also recording the introductions afterwards and finding time and space to to do it all and so I've yes. sort of fallen and off and you're a little bit busy Alice too like that's well I'm also thing. doing the the last post and <laughs> you're doing you know, about a bazillion other with. things at the same time I think yeah, the other but, thing with with having tea with somebody is that until this year Having tea really meant sitting down in person and talking. But over the last sort of eight months, we do so much more now on Zoom meetings and Teams meetings and every other platform for virtual meetings that having a virtual cup of tea with someone isn't such a strange concept anymore. So I'm having Christmas catch-ups with people who I can't get on a plane to go and see. And we will be sitting with a cup of tea and some, you know, reading a book together or whatever it is that we're doing. And we don't have to be in the same room. It also means that we don't have to squabble about what tea we're going to put into the teapot, which I suppose is a benefit. Well, <laughs> that's also meetings. been 
it's also been a sort of a blockage for me in terms of doing tea with Alice because I very like I was very firm about never doing it remotely. So I had mm. you know in in days and I wasn't even as popular as I am now. Bigger names who would say let's do it over Skype at that time before Zoom had its big thing. Uh, even when I was trying to sort out with Neil when to do it with Neil Gaiman, when to do it, and mm -hmm. he would be in a different country, and I said, no, no, it has to be face to face. It, and and so this year, it's mainly been people who I have met before, who I have a rapport mm -hmm. with. You're one mm -hmm. of the few people who I've met only once or twice, but we have a rapport, and I know that we can talk, and yeah. and have these conversations, and. Um, because it isn't just a interview podcast. It's not a fun bants podcast. It's it's about human connection, which I think, in some ways, yeah. as I said, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. Like all my work <laughs> is about human connection, and so yeah, yeah. So you you are Catherine Jones. You're drinking Earl Grey. What have you been wrestling with of late? And and if you want to give people a little background on where you're coming from and, and who you are, that's also good. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so I live in Brisbane in Australia and I've been back in Brisbane, which is my hometown for a couple of years, three, three and a half years. Prior to that, I'd been living in other parts of Australia, but also living overseas. So uh, prior to coming back to Australia, I was in Canada for a little while. And before then I was living in the UK for about nine years. Uh, so I'd been outside of my hometown environment for close to 15 years. And I guess for me, coming back a few years ago, having this year to, I guess, bunker down and not travel. So even though I'd come back to live in Brisbane, I travelled a lot. Because I haven't travelled this year, I think it's really made me think about where I'm where, where I am now and where I came from, which I had never really sat down and done before. So part of me is, is you know, wrestling with that, I suppose, about thinking about what journey I've been on. And I'm not a mad fan of the word journey, but I think it's an appropriate use in this particular this instance. literal instance. journeys as well. <laughs> the literal journey as well as a metaphorical one. Uh, and also, I guess, thinking about what, I want the rest of my life to be, you know, I mean, I'm 42, so I'm not in any way at the end of my life. I mean, I'm roughly halfway through. Um, and, you know, what do what would I like the, the next 42 years of my life to look like? And I think a lot of people are doing that this year. A lot of people are taking time to reflect on what's important to us and where do we want to proceed from here? So, yeah, you know, just the all virus, the small things, Alice. <laughs> well, this is an interesting feature of the virus, which is that it has become impossible to plan more than three months ahead, really. Now with the virus uh, uh, sort of vaccine on the horizon, that's starting to open up a little bit. But for most of this year, particularly with so, me, yes. I couldn't make yes. these plans of like, where am I going to be? And it, often when you're planning like that, uh, even though you're future focused, actually you're being very reactive. So in the case of a comedian, it's this festival application is due. And th so then you know where you'll be in October next year and you can kind of uh, do all the logistics. You to can work around the big trajectory. things. Yeah. Whereas here. Well, I've had, 
I've had a very similar experience in some ways this year. Uh, so when I'm not drinking tea and being on podcasts, I work as a radiologist and I'm a chest radiologist, as you know. And so for me, I had a, a lot of things planned this year. I was meant to travel to the States, I think, four times. I was invited to present at some major medical conferences on my subspecialty. And virtual, uh, which is AI, right? It's very exciting. Well, it's stuff. artificial intelligence in the use um, and how it can be used to implement uh, better outcomes for patients in healthcare, particularly with chest imaging. Which so I've been me, working I mean, on that. Not, I mean, obviously, this is something you know very well, but our, our listener mm. uh, will not know this. To me, this is insanely impressive because this kind of technology is has the potential to change the world and change the health of the world and save it does hundreds of thousands of lives it um, does. I absolutely and I, I when other people other medical people ask me you know what's it all about and you know some some quite skeptic you know like why would you want to be involved in this the way I, I say it particularly in the field of radiology which is you know medical imaging you know it was only just over a hundred years ago that people worked out that you could take an x-ray and look inside somebody's chest or abdomen or look at a bone to see if there was a fracture. You know, that was not very long ago at all. And then you think about how far we've come in the last sort of 30 to 40 years with computing and new technology, CT scans, PET scans, MRI scans. You know, we've been through an evolution which, have, which has seen massive leaps forward in technology and massive advances in patient care. And I feel like we are standing on the precipice of another one. And it, it's, it's almost like we've made it to the next, the next top of the hill and we're looking over into the valley of possibility. And it's so vast, I can't even see the horizon. That's where I feel we, we're at with artificial intelligence, helping us to do a better job with our patients. And I find that so exciting. I'm really excited and not just, you know, per patient, but also how can we apply this to wide populations of patients and help them with not just the acute care, but preventative care. How can we identify problems before we would otherwise know about them? It's, it's just a world of possibility. And so that was a very exciting project I was already working on. And then along comes COVID which is a chess problem. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty that's pretty phenomenal. You are not the only AI person in my extended network, but I feel like uh, my Edinburgh University PhD in artificial intelligence might not be necessarily applicable. It might be one of those things where someone goes, oh, you're a comedian, do you know Sally? Um, but, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think this stuff yeah. is incredible. And so you've been working in this for some time. You're an expert in your field. You've been doing all these conferences. And now you are at a point in your life where you're thinking, what next? Or what if next? this, then how? And what does it, what does it look yeah. like? Yeah. What so, are the kind you know, of drivers? So I think about how I got here, you know, like, uh, you know, I did degrees in maths and physics and then I did medicine and then... I sort of got sort of distracted with surgical training and radiology training and it's really been in the last, I would say, three to four years that I've 
sort of remembered, if you like, that I actually really like research. I really like um, forming hypotheses and seeing if we can prove them and, and working out what the best evidence is out there for new technologies and new approaches to things. And so for me, I think the last couple of years in particular has been about getting back to that and, and thinking, do I, do I want to be more academic? Do I want to be more, you know, do, do I want to be ad, you know, advocating for these things on a societal or global level? You know, should I be engaging with regulatory bodies to make sure that this technology is approved and that it becomes available? And really in the last 18 months, I've done a lot more of that. And it's been, it's been an eye-opening experience, but very interesting and very stimulating. And I think that I want to be doing more of that. Well, this is like a super fascinating question, I think, for many, many people in the world. And there's a sort of a mm. false dichotomy between practical application and research and, and academia. Because on yeah. one hand, you are doing the hands-on stuff. You know, if you are doing surgery, you are saving a person's life. That's in-person, one-on-one, undeniable or, you know, you're improving yes. their life or you're fixing something and it's very satisfying. Yes, and it's very, very tangible. Yes. Whereas in the in the research realm, you know, you're t- talking about these things like AI and scans and if you can improve a scan accuracy even by 10%, that is saving many more lives. With some obscure yes. research paper, you could have this impact that goes out in incalculably yes. in different directions. I don't. Right. I think in in your instance, where you have both the practical and the research application, you are um, solving one of the problems with academia, which is that people can get caught in little nice little loops of of ideas. They can get caught in the politics. They can get caught in the the funding yeah. and so on and so forth. They don't. They may yes, lose sight it can of be, what's important. It can it can be a long road in some of those institutions because of the bureaucracy that goes with them. I'm very lucky that where I work, it's not in the public health system. It's a private company and that I've been approached to be the the clinical lead for this AI product, which is just an amazing product. And it's also, I think, uh, because it's more of an entrepreneurial mindset of the people who want to make things happen, it's happening you know, at, at a greater pace. And that's that's not as to say that it doesn't have the usual safeguards in place. Of course it does, but it means that the enthusiasm and the passion for it uh, is higher. And it's really been a very interesting ride so far. We're at the point now where we have regulatory approval in, in lots of different parts of the world. And really now it's about proving the ongoing, you know, flow on benefits of it. And so that's interesting for me, talking to people from different parts of the world who have different uh, roles in their different jurisdictions. Really is very interesting to see what, what is important to the, to the people who are in government versus, for example, the doctors who are treating patients in the clinics. You know, they're, they're different end, uh, end points that, that people are keen on. So it's very interesting, the whole so thing. This is- fascinating to me because it opens up a question that I have been moving tentatively around for years and I don't have an answer. This is something that I constantly wrestle with. First of all, that 
capitalism in the absence of a moral code, in the absence of something like feudalism or Christianity or something that gives people a sense of mutual responsibility, capitalism can be this rapacious beast and it, its inevitable end is the destruction of the thing that it consumes, which is itself. Uh, mm -hmm. it, you know, that, that is this terrible side to capitalism. But equally, that that private enterprises can do things that government enterprises can't, that this drive for profit can incentivize in a way that a moral driver might not, that there are these, you know, it might not be the... It might not be a good system, but it also might be the best system that we have for practically yes. incentivizing human action rather than wouldn't it be nice if everyone were nice? What can we actually do to get these people out of bed in the morning to make the world yes. move forward, to drive this kind of innovation? Yes. And I feel like it's, it's one of those things where there is no real answer, but it's about, again, the emphasis and weight you put on each and I think a mix of, of both is needed to, to get change. I mean, what do they say that necessity is the mother of invention? So, you know, when you're a private enterprise, you know, the necessity is that you must produce a product. Um, and at some point, if you, if you don't, then you won't, you won't have a job, I suppose. <laughs> that's, that's the end point. Yeah. But, you know, at, at some point you need to be able to say, you know, what is it that we want to achieve? What are the resources required to get there? And what sort of time frame do we want to do it in? And whether that's a private enterprise or whether that's, you know, public um, service, I think there has to be a, a fairly healthy mix of uh, goal-oriented performance as well as awareness of, of why we're doing this in the first place. Yeah, and in I the think, absence of solid and sort of restrictive regulation, you end up with children in chimneys. So there has to be this kind of... <laughs> That's right. There absolutely must be robust regulatory processes in place. And whilst they can be frustrating, they ultimately prevent, you know, shady behaviour, which, you know, for all the good intention in the world, you know, you can't, can't always stamp that out. I do, I do feel that... Sometimes the regulatory behaviour or the processes that you need to go through can be quite unwieldy. However, you know that you do it because at the end of the day, the product that you, that you have is going to be safe and you're not going to be harming anybody with it. And that's, I guess, similarly uh, in the discussion people have been having about vaccines for COVID. Um, you know, I, I don't think anybody wants a vaccine to be rushed through the regulatory process, but equally, if we can take out, um, you know, bureaucratic waste time in that process, everybody would be happy to get the vaccines quicker. Um, but nobody wants the, the safety uh, precautions that, that exist to be wiped out either. So it's, yes. a, it's a fine balance between, you know, getting a product out quickly and, uh and making sure that it's still safe. And I think this, I think I'm coming down on at least, uh, and it sounds like fence sitting, but I don't think it is. I think I'm coming down on the side of the, the dialectic as the best kind of way for humanity to progress. That you, what you need is for this to be an argument that keeps happening forever. 
that it is always contested ground, like censorship, that you as a society should always be asking what you want to see and there should always be people saying we want to see everything we need to see more and there should always be people saying no there are things you see that you can never take back there are things that you can see that do damage there are things that you can see that yeah. that harm you irreparably um you know one sort of sideline example might be the kind of measurable harm that excess um exposure to graphic pornography is having on the uh, mental health and sexual health of e young men, particularly in society. Mm -hmm. So this thing of, well, okay, sure, people should be responsible for their own stuff. People are individuals. People should be given autonomy over their own access, but also we but need to, to also then expect things. And maybe you shouldn't be allowed to consent or you should. That's right. I mean, it's as you say, it's it's a fine balance between giving people autonomy and expecting them to make good decisions. Because I think it's unrealistic to expect people to make good decisions all the time. It's never it's never going to happen unless it's forced, and then you lose autonomy. And so, it's a very fine line. I think. Well, that it is also impossible to be an educated consumer about everything. Correct. <laughs> Which and is sort of I, I, that that thing of do your own research, figure out your own stuff. Someone want, someone offered me very kindly on Twitter to send me the research on the vaccine trials. I think they were hoping that I would use it to educate my audience. And I said, mm -hmm. thank you so much, but I do not have the background to understand this. Like, I don't know yeah. what it means. I would do that thing that people do with legal documents sometimes where they hone in on a sentence they understand and then they expand that understanding <laughs> And, sh and use it as a sort of a general sense of understanding or they pull the wrong thing out and, again, kind of weight and proportion. They don't know how to give things their proper credit. And you see this with these, um, what are they called, sovereign citizens quoting outdated mm -hmm. legislature with no idea how the legal system operates and no idea what what language is common usage language, what language has legal meaning what, where there's, there's a definition that relates to a common law or a legislature, a word that you think you might understand has a technical meaning with, with very clear limits in law. So people say, well, yes. ah, this means freedom, and you're like, well, no, or this is negligence, or this is uh, false arrest or false imprisonment, and you just go, mm -hmm. ah, you don't understand. And seeing that happen from the perspective of someone who has legal training has just made me so conscious of thinking yes. I understand things that I don't understand. So, yes, and I see this in medicine all the time. Um, you know, we, we often have to be very circumspect about how we word things in reports because uh, if, you, if you read a report on yourself, um, the, what you think it might mean, of course, may not be the medical interpretation of that. And so... You don't want to but cause people to be upset I have a right to, to information about myself, Catherine. And we absolutely do, I think. I should have the right to the full information <laughs> about myself, you know, like. What? But I think, it should be in, I think it should be informed information. Mm. So um, in, information out of context in, in, any, in any forum is dangerous because it leads to misinterpretation, which, of course, in turn leads to, you know, uh, incorrect consequences of acting on that information. I think it's really challenging particularly when, you know, we're in the middle of a global pandemic and misinformation about vaccines or the safety of them or 
the best way to protect yourself and the rest of the people around you in society. There is so much conflicting information that's out there all the time and knowing who to trust is very difficult. Um, yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm a doctor but I don't profess to be an epidemiologist. I mean, I could, I suppose. I mean, I'm a statistician as well as a doctor but I, I don't want to. I don't want to take on any of that professed knowledge. I leave it to those who are experts in their field and I, yeah. I trust that they know what they're doing because if you don't trust in those people, I think it's, it's suddenly the world gets a lot more scary. Yeah, and I think you need to be really careful about who you trust and how much you trust them and, and what a second opinion means and, and how one of the complicating factors that has kind of blown my mind this year, so one of those revelations that's really obvious when you think about it but you've never really thought about it, for me was the difference between public health advice and what might be personally good for you in this, you know, in this state where there's so many people putting their personal feelings about vaccines and everything uh, before in front of the government advice in their mind, mm -hmm. you know, to do them uh, uh, credit service, I guess, to do them uh, the justice of the rightness of their opinion as far as it goes, that is true. What the government recommends is what's good for everyone en masse, statistically, Correct. but that may not be good for you as an individual. For example, the advice on mammograms uh, was revised because they used to say everyone, you know, basically get a mammogram, be careful, uh, be more careful. It is more careful to get a mammogram than not. And then they realized that there were sufficient false positives, that there were sufficient situations where a, a troubling lump would appear that would resolve itself. Uh, and that people were getting these mammograms, being diagnosed with a, a, a cancer or, or precautionarily getting biopsies or, or going undergoing radiotherapy or chemotherapy in some instances, that were, when they finally figured it out or put it all in balance, unnecessary and more damaging en masse than you know, people going undiagnosed, the numbers of people who were having unnecessary surgeries was, was higher than it needed to be compared with the people who would be undiagnosed if they didn't get these mammograms from whatever it was. I think they made the age older now. That doesn't they help have, you if you actually older. have cancer. Yeah. No, <laughs> like it that doesn't. That doesn't help and... you if you're the 23-year-old with a lump who doesn't get a mammogram because it's not the government advice. No, that's right. I mean, I think the thing... And it's the same with cervical screening. It's the same with many, many things. You have to be, you have to weigh up what's the advice that we can live with morally across society that that we that we don't have too many false negatives, but equally we don't cause false positives with unnecessary biopsy and the mental anguish that goes with these things. It's it's a very challenging uh, field to be in. And ultimately, as long as, as long as each of us as individuals is aware of the, the risks and benefits, then that's a wonderful system. But, of course, as you said earlier, we can't be aware of all of the details of everything. And that's where we go to our nominated experts, whether that's in government, whether that's, you know, within um, our local network with our GPs and lots of other um, resources. If that's available to you, then, you know, it's, it's about making an informed choice. And that's really 
the difficulty that we have, not just in medicine, but in many other fields, it's, it's how do you make an informed choice that's right for you as an individual? And I think we've seen a lot of that this year with, with lockdowns in various parts of the country and then in various parts of the world and different approaches to a lockdown you know, situation. You know, um, yeah. lots of lots of people are still reluctant to leave their homes for unnecessary uh, reasons uh, in in parts of Australia that haven't had any sort of lockdown for months now. Because yeah, and equally, they're very on cautious, the contrary, you know? it's it's really hard to make this uh, for the people who are against lockdown. The harm to them as individuals is very apparent. That's right. And they yeah. might be looking at the numbers and thinking, well, the risk to them is nominal, putting aside the fact that we don't know what the long-term side effects of getting this <laughs> might right. be. Well, that's my other research like project for next year. Erectile dysfunction for men is one of the ones that I think should be more publicised potentially. Um, right. But... Uh, but you know, this you have to go with what easy. resonates with people, Alice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I feel like this will, this will, men will take their erection seriously. Um, but you know, this is this is this. You can see the harm that is being done to you by doing a lockdown, and you might rightly say, "Well, the risk to me is low. Uh, why am I not allowed to go out into the world?" And yeah, oh, I totally understand. I totally understand that. I mean, certainly there's so many other stressors at the moment, you know, like economic stressors and emotional, being unable to to work. I mean, you know, lots of people in your industry and other industries haven't been able to work. And, you know, that's that's a huge um, source of anxiety as well as other seemingly more trivial things like, you know, I can't get to my gym class. Well, it sounds quite trivial, but for a lot of people, that sort of routine and that um, self-care that they haven't been able to access a lot for a lot of this year, you know, really had a huge impact. And I completely understand, um, you know, lockdown fatigue and COVID fatigue, you know, the, the, the increasing um, lethargy and tiredness when it comes to, you know, if we get another wave of it again, you know, how are we going to cope with it again? And, and we're seeing this in other parts of the world, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere now where, you know, COVID-2, as some of my American co colleagues are calling it, um, you know, particularly you know, in some of the more populated US cities, talking to them this week, you know, they've just said we are absolutely overwhelmed with cases and, you know, how do you, how do you maintain, you know, uh, the energy to keep fighting that every day, you know, not only as a, as a medical professional and lots of allied health professionals too, but just, you know, as a person living in that society, how do you carry on with the attitude of let's do the right thing, let's beat it together, like we're all in this together? I mean, we've heard that a number of times. Yeah, It's increasingly for, difficult to, to keep that, that attitude. I think for us in Australia, it's sort of very instructive to look at places like America where COVID has just overtaken heart disease as the, the biggest killer of Americans. And that's mm -hmm. heart disease in America, <laughs> the mm -hmm. inventor of the Big Mac. <laughs> like, that's right. That's uh, right. You know, that's a big deal. Uh, and so I well, think it's good it's, for it's us to be able deal. to see how it can go wrong and how our efforts have paid off, um, socially speaking. But, yeah, yeah I think it's, it's all... It's it's still hard. I mean, you can, you can look at it and say, yeah, we've done the right thing. But, you know, when you're in the thick of it, it's still very hard. 
um, earlier in the year when Something COVID... Something can be right and still have a cost, I feel. That's is, right. Uh, is a narrative that is not being um, ex- explained enough or expressed well, enough. Well, I think perhaps it hasn't been acknowledged. Um, it's, it's hard to say, you know, I guess as a, as a lawmaker or as a government official, you know, we understand that this is hard, but we think it's the right way whilst striking the right tone, I think, because somebody who is in an acute crisis, it's going to be an acute crisis for them no matter what you say to them. It's, you know, it's a terrible situation. Um, And simply saying, hey, look over there, they have it worse than us, is not helpful when you're in the middle of a crisis. So, I mean, certainly I think there are many, many things about the pandemic and the experience that we've had so far which which, I mean, I'm not going to say it's good, but it's not as bad as it could have been when you look at the numbers on paper and yet the cost to society um, is very very much more difficult to measure. Yeah. I mean, earlier in the year when COVID was pretty much an unknown entity, we were, you know, running around as medical professionals. Um, you know, a lot of us were sort of just resigned to the fact that we were probably going to get it. Uh which, you know, was a fairly uh, confronting thing to have to think about. Thankfully, the vast majority of us here in Australia, even including the health professionals, haven't, re- haven't gotten COVID. Uh, and so that's turned out better than we had, <laughs> had anticipated back in sort of March and April. But it certainly but that changes mean... the narrative, I think, for it does. You know, p- people whose parents pressured them into becoming doctors because it was a safe career, <laughs> all of a sudden being essentially the equivalent <laughs> of frontline right. soldiers, you know? Frontline soldiers. And it was quite interesting, um, you know, several of my of my colleagues who, who are doctors as well, you know, working in the public, in the public hospitals were sort of being told, you know, when you go home, you really shouldn't be seeing your family in case you brought COVID home. And I thought, wow, <laughs> that's an absolutely terrible thing to say to someone who works for you. And it's a terrible burden to think that you might be the the one that brings it into your home. Thankfully, as I said, it hasn't happened here in Australia. But, I mean, it's something that my uh, North American and my European colleagues are, are struggling with right now. And you know, that's, that's a terrible uh, thing to have at the back of your mind all the time. Yeah. But equally, you know, you have to do what you have to do. It's, uh, it's, it's a no-win situation a lot of the time. You can't, there's no one answer that, that fits everything. Anyway, I this is a very morose part of this most chat. Tea with Alice uh, possible way to end. Uh, that was a perfect <laughs> sentence on which to end Tea with Alice. I was just thinking that's a beautiful uh even even if it is melancholy, I think it's a beautiful thing that everything is, you know, more complicated <laughs> so than you want it to This is what happens when I drink Earl Grey, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's also a good thing to know. Uh, you have, as well as been being a professional uh, in this, you know, increasingly fraught field uh, of respiratory health, you've been writing. You've got a book out or part of a book. Well, I wouldn't say a whole book. Um, so this year... Over the last two, three or four months, I've been contributing to an anthology, uh, which is titled Letters to A Letter to My Ten-Year-Old Self. And it's published by Change Empire Books. Uh, Catherine Mora is the publisher. We've uh, we've collated, I think, 25 people from across society 
each of each of us writing a chapter addressed to ourselves when we were 10 and each story is different and talks about different challenges uh, different messages that we would like to uh, to give to ourselves back when we were 10 and it's been it's well it's definitely gotten me out of my comfort zone I think that's very fair to say having to again reflect on where I've been what I'd like to uh, tell myself when I was 10 about you know it's okay to be you I think that's a very important message to a 10 year old and you know it's actually you turned out okay you know you could be worse I think it's a, <laughs> it's it's a very um it was a very interesting experience I thoroughly enjoyed it it's also just such an Australian way to put it as well like if you were an American you'd be like it's gonna be amazing you're gonna be a queen yeah, it could right. be worse very Australian <laughs> You know what? It wasn't too bad. I mean, it's like the the positive, negative. Ah, it's not bad. You'll be a leader um, in your field. You'll save lives, whatever. That's oh well, cool. you know. I don't. I don't want to get tickets on myself, Alice. It's a very Australian <laughs> thing to be to be too out there. But you know, we've As had someone we've had who lots sells of tickets to myself. This is a constant <laughs> battle for me. That's right. Well, I was asked today by a colleague, "Can you give me a two line bio?" to put in um, to an application for something. And I thought, right, you know, I have to write two lines about how amazing I am. And I just thought, ah, you know what, I'm just going to write two lines about how amazing I am. And then I sort of ended up with, oh, well, there's nothing like a bit of self-promotion, is there? And he wrote back and he said, no, I think it's great. <laughs> but, you know, even even being an expert in what I do, uh, I felt the need to just sort of say at the end, you know, almost an apologetic sort of like, oh, you know, I hope that that's okay. Um, it's a very Australian thing to do, it is. but I'm getting so better at it, Alice. I'm getting the better book at is, it. The book is a letter to my 10-year-old self, um, and if you're yeah. uh, somewhere in the world getting a lung scan, you might also participate in Catherine's work at some point. <laughs> you might well do. And the book's been released um, um, and it's possibly still at the, at the launch price. So there you go. Exciting stuff normally i say where can people yes. find you online but i'm going to assume that the book is where people can find you the people can find me online there um they can also find me on linkedin as dr Catherine jones dr Catherine jones mm. thank you so much for having tea with me well alice i feel like we should do this again but perhaps next time we should be doing it in person because i miss you and i would like to see you again Oh, likewise. Yeah, we've had some fun times, uh, fun times on the Manly Ferry. <laughs> we have, and that can be the topic for our next conversation.
Oh, do you know her or do you not? This dolphin mistress that we have got. Elsie Thompson, it is her name, and she helps the dolphins at every frame. Lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day. On Monday morning when she comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin. Turns around for to view her frames, crying, damn you doffers, cry up your ends. Lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day. And when the boss, he looks round the door, tie your ends up doffers, he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do, for Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lally rifle doll, lally rifle day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away, is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lally rifle doll, lally rifle day.